0: we are in our last week in the life of Abraham and so we'll take a a week break and then CJ will move forward with the end of Genesis in the in the person of Joseph but um, I have really enjoyed like slowing down through this character Paul calls Abraham the father of all who believe and so he is very much our father in the faith Um, by that Paul means both that Abraham is the source of our faith and a model for faith and so Jews and Christians wouldn't have faith. He's he's the source of faith. There would be no faith uh, were it not for God's relationship with Abraham. If you've been through our membership process at Citizens, when we uh, go through our belief statement, our um, theological statement, we begin with a picture of the Christian family tree. And at the root of the tree is not Jesus, but Abraham. Abraham is the root of the tree, and Jesus is a child of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, um, because even Jesus was a seed Of Abraham. Even Jesus' father was in many ways Abraham. He was the father of Jesus, uh, the father of all who believe. And so he's the source of our faith. Um, He's also the model of faith. And that's what we've seen in these stories. Man, they're so. Um, it's not just biographical. It's not just details. Where hey, you need to get your history right. He dives into the person and wrestling of Abraham, and we learn what it means to follow God. And so, if you're curious about what a relationship with God is like, a great place to start is a deep reflection in the person of Abraham. Uh, today, we come to the climax of Abraham's story. This is um, this is where it's all been moving moving towards. And we know that because of the way the story is shaped, um, the way it's told. It begins with a very dramatic statement. After these things, God tested Abraham. We've never heard that language before. God has not tested Abraham at any point thus far. Um, But after these things being what happened most recently, but really his whole life, he's been following Jesus for 50 years. And at this point comes a test from God. Um, this passage also ends dramatically with a even bigger restatement of the covenant. So every time God restates his promises, he makes them bigger and bigger. And so um, Genesis 22, verse 16, by myself, I have sworn. He's never done that before. He's always made promises, but here's an oath. He's he's swearing um, in a way that he hasn't. declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's never been included before. That There's like a military might that comes behind um, Abraham and Isaac. And in, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's almost as if, as you read the story, that God has been waiting for this moment. Uh, that he has told the promises, he's like been there, but this is the moment where he's been waiting uh, to announce this blessing. Abraham's been sort of a mixed bag thus far, sometimes faithful, sometimes not. Um, At a minimum, he's very unpredictable. And so if we're a first-time reader of the story, if we don't really know the ending, which most of us all know the ending by this point, um, we might wonder, man, is he going to pass the test? Like that might make us nervous when we're reading that God's testing Abraham. He could totally blow it. Um, And so were worried about it. And then you read what the test is and your eyes sort of widen, right? The sacrifice of one's own son. And then you're asking, man, do I want Abraham to pass this test? Like, I don't know if I want this to happen. I don't know if I want God to be someone who asks this of his children. Um, Genesis 22 is this quintessential expression of mature faith in God. It's a huge story. And so in Jewish custom, it's called the Akedah. Um, is the Hebrew word for binding, the binding of Isaac when Isaac is bound. Um, The story is read every year on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. So every new year in in a Jewish synagogue, when they come together to celebrate the new year, I think on the first day they read Genesis 12, the call, the first test of Abraham. And then the second um, day they read this story. Um, interestingly, it's not referenced much in the Old Testament, as big of a story it is it is. It's also not referenced a lot in the New Testament, um, but ex- except for Hebrews 11 and James 2. And so Hebrews 11 sort of explains the story in some ways to us. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so in pondering the story, why Abraham would assent to such a thing, the author of Hebrews says he was convinced, Abraham was convinced that after sacrificing him, God would raise him from the dead. Uh, That is what justified his uh, obedience, And Genesis 22 shows us this isn't some empty platitude. A lot of us would say, oh, God's good. Like, it'll work out. Like, no, he he did it. He, like, raised the knife. It's like a, he, like, it's very clear that he is about to slay his son. Uh, he proved this faith by binding his son, raising the knife. And so James 2 comments, was not Abraham, Abraham our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And so Abraham's faith begun in such a small way, 50 years earlier, is now completed in this action, in this particular work, the willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Um, As I said in the prayer, honestly, I'm pretty intimidated by this story. It is such an intense story, it's intensely told. Um, And so I want you to be intimidated with me. And so I want you, I want to slow down and I want you to imagine the story. It exudes significance. Um, This story is well represented in art, in story, in philosophy, as people have wrestled with its meaning. Um, But at the same time, a lot is left unsaid. It's just 19 verses. And there's a lot actually that we don't know. Um, if you were directing a film adaptation of the story, if you had to sort of like put together a film, you would have to add a lot of details. How old is Isaac? We don't really know. He's old enough to be able to carry the wood and to be able to ask his father like a legit question. So he could be you know seven or eight, but he could be 30. We really don't know, because at the, at the very next story, he's 35. And so we don't know. And that really changes the story. If you think about the story of with Isaac being seven, 15, 25, 30. That's a very different story. And so uh, we don't know where Sarah is in this. She's not represented in the story. What was her part? Did she know it was happening? Did he keep it a secret from her? We don't know those things. And so uh, a lot of detail is missing, but let's look at what detail is there. So opening in verse one, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And so first thing to know, Abraham is being tested, but he doesn't know that he's being tested. We know, the narrator tells us that. So we get to read the story with that in mind, but Abraham doesn't know that at all. He just receives an instruction from the Lord. Um, And this is a new layer of relationship. So even if we think about it, testing, does God test his people? And how do you feel about that? Um, God is allowed to test us, even after 50 years of following him faithfully. Um, I hate being tested in relationship. Like there's nothing that would aggravate me more if I'm in relationship and then you do something to me that's sort of like, oh, I was just testing you to see if you do it. That would cause me to be angry. Um, But God here does that. He tests Abraham and he's good to do it. That's how Israel was to understand their time in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The 40 years in the wilderness was a test that he would know what was in their heart. Deuteronomy 8:16. he did this that he might humble you and test you to do you good, and you're in the end. And so his test has a goal to do good, but it's still kind of infuriating, the idea that God would do that. Ultimately, God tests us because he wants us to receive eternal life, the ultimate good. In James 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, we sang this morning about Abraham and how. He is good in how God keeps his promises, and we remember that in times of storm, and times of struggle. And to think that, like, those storms and struggles are designed by God as a test for us. Uh, He's in control of that. God always tests us fairly. He never tests us beyond our ability. So 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And that means that this was a fair test. Amazingly, this was not too much for Abraham. God never tests his children beyond what they can bear. And so this is a fair test for him, a fair thing for God to ask, and which is hard for us. So we should talk about the test itself. The first problem, I have three problems with Genesis 22 that we need to figure out and wrestle with. The first problem is child sacrifice, right? (laughs) Like God asked Abraham to sacrifice his own son. Verse one, one, uh, verse two, he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so a burnt offering is when an animal is killed, the entire animal is offered to the Lord as opposed to just the blood or just a part. Um, The whole animal is offered, you keep none of it for yourself and it shows complete devotion to God. Uh, The complete offering of the animal versus just parts, it represents the complete offering of oneself. Um, I am offering myself completely. And the obvious difficulty with this test is that it involves offering a child. God is asking Abraham to kill his own son as a burnt offering. And even if he doesn't actually have to do it in the end, we still are unsettled at the end of the chapter. Like we're still bothered by it, that God would even ask that of Abraham, that he would even mention it. Um, It's like when somebody like jokes about killing puppies and you're like, oh, like, don't do that. Like, it's not even a funny joke, you know? Like, and that's how this feels. It's like, oh, this this feels unsettling and not okay. Uh, Sadly, child sacrifice was not unheard of in the ancient Near East. Everybody's getting education on child sacrifice over here, (laughs) Um, uh, all the passersby. Um, It probably wasn't very common, but it was practiced. Uh, Ancient texts talk about it. Archaeologists have discovered a mass grave in Carthage that included probably 40,000 bodies of children. Um, And then they were often accompanied by grave markers or gravestones that were engraved with some blessing from the parents as if the parents had prayed for something to happen and then promised their next child um, if the prayer was answered. Um, And so as abhorrent as that is to us, it is abhorrent because of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, It has been practiced around the world in many different places. It actually Um, Sadly, as I was researching this week, there are still parts of the world where it is practiced today. Um, The Old Testament does reference child sacrifice, and it always condemns it. Uh, It's an abomination to the Lord. And so Leviticus 20, 1 through 5, says the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death the people of the land shall stone him with stones I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man, if they tolerate it, when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. And so this is very clear that God is against child sacrifice, but the fact that it has to be made so clear means that it was around them, that it was a temptation, that God would even have to say that. We don't have to when we talk about like member interviews, we're like, okay, we're, we're for this, we're for this, and we're also against child sacrifice. Like we don't have to say that when we invite people into our church because that is universally abhorrent. Um, but it had to be said in Leviticus 20 because there were practices around them and temptations. And you actually see Second Kings condemns King Ahaz for burning his son as an offering. And so one of the kings of Israel did this according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And so this means that the nations around Abraham at that time practiced child sacrifice. And so when we know that, does this mean that Abraham hadn't yet learned God's character maybe in, on this point where maybe he thought this was something that God could ask him to do. And so he gets up and obeys it. And so similar to how god tweaks the rite of circumcision where and then and even the genesis 15 where it's like and then he changes it maybe that's what's gonna that's what's happening here now the first listeners of genesis were the israelites and so they did know that they were supposed to give their firstborn sons to god that's uh clear in exodus and leviticus that the firstborn of every womb hum or human or animal belonged to god And so when they were leaving Egypt, the judgment of the 10th plague was the death of every firstborn son. And these sons could be spared with the blood of the lamb as an atoning sacrifice. And so in that sense, this story is also not surprising to the first listeners. They're like aware of that. But the Torah is explicit that in the case of human children, that God doesn't want human children, that they are to buy back their children by offering a substitute, a ram in its place. And so that is also in the text here. He never wants people to sacrifice their children. Children and humans generally are never sacrificed in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And that's central to the ethic of the Old Testament. So those things are in the back, should be in the back of our mind as we begin this story. And as we hear this question, they would have heard this story in that context. And so should we, that everything that is ours is ours by gift. It's been loaned to us. And what's more that God judges sin with death and that's part of sacrifice too. And so we don't know, is this burnt sacrifice for Isaac's sin? Is it for Abraham's sin? We're not told. Is it just an act of devotion? Regardless though, you hear this question and you realize like God is fearsome. He is fearsome and Abraham obeys because he fears God. Now that's the commendation at the end of the chapter verse 12, he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And so when we think about child sacrifice, other religions which practice that, they do not actually fear God. They think that God's blessing could be bought, that he can be manipulated. And that's disgusting in the eyes of God. He hates that. And so Micah 6, 7, and 8, a famous passage, it it talks about child sacrifice. It says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is that what God wants for me? No. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? God does not want sacrifice to children he doesn't want that he wants goodness and so this is the first problem with genesis 22 child sacrifice and it it's kind of made better by the like later condemnation of it but it's still unsettling i still find myself pretty unsettled by it um so let's stick a pin in it and we'll move on okay <laughs> um, um the second problem his beloved son Uh, child sacrifice isn't just immoral it's devastating this is a child like a beloved child this is Abraham's son and God is not ignorant of this reality he spells it out take your son your only son Isaac whom you love Uh, the Hebrew actually includes like a, a little particle which turns it into a request where it's actually there's a please in here Please take your son. As if God knows the intensity of this request. Please take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is actually the first time in scripture that the word love is used. And I don't know what that means, but it felt significant. That the very first time that we hear the word for love in the story is here in the relationship of Abraham with his son, that he loved his son. So not only is child sacrifice abhorrent, this is the sacrifice of a beloved son. It's his only son. Lot's gone, who would have been like a son to Abraham. In the last chapter before this one, uh, God instructed Abraham to send Ishmael away um, in a very similar story. And so the only person left is Isaac. I was reflecting this week on how Isaac's name meant laughter. Genesis 21, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Uh, It's it's funny when you name a child after a regular word. Um, So our son's name is shepherd. And um, that is because our desire is that he would grow up to be like a good shepherd who is both strong and comforting, um, strong and gentle. A provider and protector and that's cool but eventually it's just his name right like i like he's just shepherd but then there are some times where it just like strikes you um as what his name is and what it means um and i wonder how often that happens with the name isaac his name at laughter and so it um Did they remember that every birthday? Did they recite it to him? Did they recite the story to him? Was he a funny kid? Was Isaac funny? Um, Where he brought a lot of laughter, but regardless, you just know how much joy Isaac brought to their life after waiting for a hundred years. And then this hundred year old man and 90 year old woman has a little toddler running around their house. How beautiful that must've been joy that is so shocking it produces laughter and god asks abraham to kill him to offer up his laughter his joy as a sacrifice why uh, maybe tim keller is onto something pretty sharp dude he writes isaac was now everything to abraham as god's call makes clear he does not refer to the boy as isaac but as your son your only son whom you love Abraham's affection had become adoration. Previously, Abraham's meaning in life had been dependent on God's word. Now it was becoming dependent on Isaac's love and well-being. The center of Abraham's life was shifting. God was not saying you cannot love your son, but that you must not turn a loved one into a counterfeit God. And so Abraham had prayed for Isaac for decades he'd given up a few times, but God insisted for him to continue praying, continue striving after this. And now Isaac was his. But when we pray for something for so long and we finally get it, it's easy for our love for God to shift to, our, to a love for his gifts. And this isn't only offensive to God, it is the gift giver, but it's actually destructive to Abraham. And so this is a protecting move. Right, Abraham's son worship could, in fact, jeopardize the whole redemptive project of God if Abraham turns out not to be following God, but merely his gifts. And so if that's the case, that Abraham follows God for his gifts, he's not really that much better than the Phoenician uh, pagans down the road sacrificing their children for a better harvest next year and Yahweh is no better than Molech if he's sort of satisfied with that and so God is emphasizing how he's after more than that in relationship with his people he desires an obedient worshiping people who loves him for him and not just for his gifts and so we have two problems child sacrifice we have the sacrifice of a beloved son and then the third problem is the promise of God And it's actually the biggest problem in the story of Genesis that Isaac's sacrifice threatens the promise of God. This is about more than Isaac and Abraham. It's about the salvation of the world. That if Abraham fails, if Isaac dies, redemption is done. Um, All God's promises hinged on Abraham's offspring. Uh, That's been the primary obsession of the whole story. Abraham and Sarai needed a son. We needed them to have a son. And in the process of getting Isaac, Abraham's already had to let go of a lot of failed sons. He's let go of Lot, a failed son lost to Sodom. Ishmael was a son, Abraham had to let go. The thing is though, Abraham can't really let Isaac go. Um, God has really painted himself into a corner uh, because he promised to bless Abraham through Isaac. And so it's not like he can just have a, another son, uh, you know. Sarah, I had Isaac at ninety. What? That's already laughable. And so why not have another baby at one hundred and twenty-five? Right? Like that's okay. We can do that again. But God specifically promised that Isaac would carry Abraham's blessing. Genesis seventeen nineteen. I will establish my covenant with him, Isaac, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And so that's really the large problem in the story is that if Isaac's gone, the promise is gone. And this is a new experience for Abraham because we've seen Abraham endanger the covenant plenty of times where he like lied about Sarah, jeopardized her, sent her off. Um, He had Ishmael, all all those sorts of things. And every time God intervened. And so whenever Abraham messed up or potentially messed up and threatened the promise. God would swoop in. But here we have God endangering the covenant. And so who is going to swoop in and rescue the covenant from God? God himself was jeopardizing the promise, the promise that he made in Genesis 12, the promise that he bet his own life on in Genesis 15, the promise that he re-upped in Genesis 17 and attached specifically to Isaac. Who will save the covenant from God? Is Abraham to save it? Why doesn't Abraham argue with God here? A few chapters earlier, he argues over Sodom to spare Sodom. If there's only, if there are 10 righteous people, will you save, It wouldn't it be unjust for you to do that? He doesn't argue here. Why doesn't he argue with God? He obeys immediately. So verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning Saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. It really is interesting to think about Isaac in the story. And when you read it with Isaac at different ages, it's just such a different story if he's just an eight-year-old just trusting his dad or if he's a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old who is participating in this. Um, Regardless, it does feel like Isaac is a willing participant. He has to be. He can't over, like his 120-year-old dad can't overpower him, you know? And so when he lays down on the altar, he must choose to do it in trust. Abraham emphasizes, the text emphasizes, they're going to worship together. Isaac carries the wood. And eventually Isaac allows himself to be bound Who will protect the covenant from God? And I think we get Abraham's answer here in his reply. Why didn't he argue with God? Verse 7, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. It would be foolish for Abraham to try and protect the promise from God as if the promise of blessing can be separated from God. We can't argue with his clear instruction, to argue with his clear words, as if, as if Abraham is more just than God. God would provide an answer sufficient to both promises and commands. Isn't that the point of Keller, that you, you can't separate Well, what are the promises apart from God? If he were to run away, if he were to defend, if he were to recant, it's not Abraham's job to protect the covenant. God has promised that he will protect the covenant, that he will handle both sides, the promise and the commandment. It's not Abraham's job to guarantee either side of the relationship. And Isaac, in whatever capacity he has, agrees. He goes along, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And so I just want to pause here and I want you to meditate on that moment. What was Abraham thinking? Knife raised son bound Isaac breathing heavily scared even if Isaac is willing is this worth it can this be called good this is child sacrifice this is my beloved son this jeopardizes all of God's promises And it's at this point that the New Testament really like swoops in to help us. And it helped me this week because in Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. And this week's the first time I realized like, this is the moment he's in the act. What is he thinking in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And Abraham is thinking, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And when I was meditating this week on all the problems with this story and the impossibly hard realities on display, I realized that the only resolution to the problems is the possibility of resurrection. That's the only thing that makes this story okay, is the fact that God is able to raise the dead. And Abraham knew that. That's the only thing that makes his compliance okay, makes it believable. It's the only thing that makes God's character make sense, a firm belief in the resurrection which is baffling because we haven't had any real stories of resurrection thus far. But Abraham's faith was such that he knew that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And so if you rethink this moment through the lens of resurrection, it's still so hard. It's still so scary. So I realize I'm not like, oh, that that makes sense. That's so easy. Like, it's still a tough story, but with the idea of resurrection, the, pot, the belief and conviction of resurrection, the sacrifice ceases to be cruel and God is no longer a monster if the resurrection is true. The promises are still able to be fulfilled and God is not a liar if resurrection is true. And the beloved son remains loved even in the sacrifice if resurrection is true. So that Abraham is not choosing God over his son. He is not abandoning him. He is rightly ordering his loves. Reminds me of Jesus. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so Abraham is bringing that into this moment. He is loving his son and Isaac is loving his father by both going through with this because of the reality of resurrection. Abraham had already experienced resurrection once in a way in the birth of Isaac. Paul says Abraham and Sarah's bodies were both as good as dead, right? But God created life out of nothing. He resurrected her womb, her reproductive capacities. in there's it's a little bit of scandalous. Uh, Sarah says, I haven't even enjoyed sex with this guy. That in Genesis 17, like she's baffled at the reality of this, right? Um And so God resurrected them. And if he did it once, he could do it again. Indeed, he had to because God had promised, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And that is what God God did in providing the ram. As Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. And the book of Hebrews calls this a figurative resurrection. Isaac was as good as dead and deserved death. God God could have not intervened, but he did. And so Abraham received Isaac back from the dead because of the powerful promise of God he was spared. Abraham did not need to protect God's promises from God. God could protect the promises. What a story. Uh, The faith of Abraham is shocking, right? Hebrews is right to hold him forth as a model for Christians to aspire after, to believe and trust in the way that Abraham trusted. He's the father of all who believe, the source of faith. And that source grows into this great river of men and women uh, in the book of Hebrews, right? Following God in faith because they believe in the resurrection. And, And you see that all through Hebrews 11. What more shall I say? Were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Again, resurrection is all through here. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Man, how can hope Hebrews celebrate such like hard and difficult stories because of the resurrection, because of the reality of God, that, he w- that this is not the end, because this life is not all there is. God's promises are for more, and Abraham believed that, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this hope of Hebrews 11 culminates in Jesus, who also remains faithful by believing in the resurrection. And so Jesus himself endured the cross because of his belief in the resurrection. God the Father sent his Son because of his belief in the resurrection. Jesus knew that the Son of Man must die and be raised from the dead three days later. There are signs of Jesus all throughout this story. Uh, In the obedient faith of Abraham, we see the faith of Jesus, who is willing to do the unthinkable, to trust God as his Father. In the willingness of Isaac to die, who trusts his father, who carries his own cross up the mountain and lets his father bind him. And finally, in the ram, we see Jesus, a substitute, who died in the place of Isaac. Uh, Ian Duguid, a Scottish pastor, says, Isaac was restored again to his relationship with his father, but not without a sacrifice. His redemption could not be accomplished without the shedding of blood. God didn't simply call off the whole sacrifice after Abraham passed the test. The sacrifice still had to be made. Only the victim was changed. So it is also for us. Grace may be free to us, but but it is so only because God has borne all the cost himself in Jesus. It is surely significant that this event takes place on the Mount of Moriah, where Solomon's temple would be built. Just a few short steps from Calvary, like thousands of years later right that's where this happened mount of moriah there are clear allusions in genesis 22 to the day of atonement when israel is spared judgment every year because of a substitute sacrifice the son of god israel the son of god is substituted by sacrifice and in the same manner jesus died on the cross as an atoning substitute there was no ram for him he was the ram for us and it didn't matter that he was the son of God. And so, as we remember a few minutes ago, the horror of Abraham binding Isaac and holding the knife above, God the Father did the same for Jesus. That same horror, more intense. Ian get again, just as Abraham's willingness to take obedience to the ultimate point demonstrated his love for God beyond a shadow of a doubt, so also God's willingness to take his son's obedience all the way to the agonies on the cross demonstrated the depth of his love for us beyond a shadow of a doubt. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said in John 8 that Abraham uh, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day so that there's some sense where Abraham can look forward in anticipation of Jesus. He has some insight into the future. And so if we're to follow Abraham's faith, we have to follow Christ. Like Abraham in Genesis 12, we leave our past behind us and press forward. We follow him. Like Abraham in Genesis 15, we trust Jesus to take care of both the promise and the commandment. Like Abraham in Genesis 17, we strive to walk before him and be blameless, circumcising our hearts, striving to love God and love others. And then like Abraham here, when considering the threat of sin and death, we remember God will provide a sacrifice. He has provided. Jesus is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. Let's pray.